I, I want to start off with a bit of a, an odd confession. I have a, a headbutt specialist in my house. Uh, Lucy is my three-year-old, and her signature move is a running headbutt. Uh, sometimes it's adorable, it's very sweet. Sometimes it creates panic and it's terrifying. Sometimes people get hurt like her sisters. And there was one day that happened a little while ago where Lucy was doing her running headbutt towards one of her sisters and, and hurt her. And so I tried to crack down as you know, that careful parent and said, hey, Lucy, you need to say sorry or there's no TV today. And Lucy looks at me, her eyes kind of squint and her teeth get all clenched. Doesn't even look at her sister and just says, sorry. <laughs> It was a beautiful moment, right from the heart, you know, it could tell tenderness. But have you ever been in that place where you're in a position that you feel forced to be in? You just don't want to be in, but there's some sort of begrudging obedience. Maybe it's like a social obligation. That friend who's invited you over just one too many times, you just keep saying no, no, and think, oh, you know, I just, I've got to say yes this time. Or maybe it's that, that work pressure where you think, man, this really isn't my problem and this shouldn't be on my desk, but I gotta do it anyways. Maybe it's that relationship stress where you feel like the person who's in your life has ruined the picture for the kind of story you had hoped to have. Maybe it's a spiritual stress where you feel like God could have and should have acted in a different way and you feel disappointed. Today we're going to keep going in the, the book of Jonah and this series about one of God's prophets who is deeply frustrated with his life, his, his social obligations, his, his work tasks, his relational and spiritual worlds are all being strained right to the breaking point. The story of Jonah is meant to be a, a mirror for all of us to help us locate ourselves in the story of, of Jonah. In the context of faith, we open up lots of stories in the Bible. And the idea is that these stories will help open up our own stories to find ourselves in these texts. We're meant to see our own resentments in the frustrated life of Jonah. So let's do a, a quick review. Um, the book of Jonah starts in chapter one where Jonah tries the rebellion option. God gives him a, a call saying, go to Nineveh. And he runs away from God's instructions and he finds himself totally bottomed out. He's at the bottom of the sea, um, swallowed up by a giant fish that's as low as you can go, rock bottom. Then in chapter two, Jonah starts to pray for a second chance. This time he's trying more of a, a spiritual option. He's trying to, to plead from the heart for, for God to have mercy. He offers this beautiful poetic prayer from the belly of the fish. This could be his conversion moment, uh, a new kind of Jonah. And we see him being vomited up by this fish onto the beach. And here in chapter three, we're going to see what kind of new Jonah will emerge from the fish. So... We're going to try and look at that today. Chapter three, what kind of dread do we find? Maybe it's a blend of his 
rebellious side and his spiritual side. But the big question that's thrown at us as a mirror in chapter three is, how will we respond to the mercy of God? Have it in your mind as we read this, Jonah chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Today in Jonah and in the people of Nineveh, we'll see two pretty profound sketches for how we can respond to God's mercy. So we'll have two questions that will be our our guiding frame for today. One, what shuts mercy down? And two, What opens mercy up? Where does it shut down? Where does it open up? Let's get right into it. So verse one says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. A second word comes from God. If you remember, this is how the whole story of Jonah begins where a word of God comes to him. And what does he do? He rebels and runs the opposite way. Here in chapter three, it's a full cycle. We're back to the beginning. And this time a second word comes to Jonah and instead of rebelling, he he consents. This chapter is all about second chances. A second chance for Jonah, second chance for the whole people of of Nineveh. Now I'm I'm a really big Eminem fan. Maybe there's some other Eminem fans uh, in the room. But when it comes to God's mercy, you don't only get one shot. You know, it's, it's not one opportunity in a lifetime. Mercy keeps coming again and again and again and again. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. Mercy keeps coming again and again. This theme of a renewed chance for Jonah is, is huge in this book. And yet, unfortunately, we'll see that there, there's not a lot that shifts in Jonah's heart when he has another crack at things. We read in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Right there, at the end of that verse, 
That's where Jonah's work project, his whole prophetic task in Nineveh, it ends. In that one little line, all this drama of running away from God, being hurled into the sea, down into the fish, spinning to land, walking back to Nineveh to deliver a one-liner. It's, it's a little sobering. When the, when the writer talks about Nineveh, this great city, uh, its size is dramatically exaggerated. You know, it's, it's meant to be an impossible task for us as hearers. That Nineveh is said to be a city where it takes three days to simply walk across. That's a, that's a huge picture. It's meant to say, Jonah, how will you ever do it? A city that takes you three days to go from side to side. How will you preach renewal? Jonah is unfazed. He simply takes a third of the journey in. He walks one day into the city and he offers five words in Hebrew. This is the world's shortest sermon ever. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The five word sermon. There you have it. There's no mention of God in his message. There's no call to repentance. It's just a little quick sound bite of doom saying, hi all, hey, 40 days and you're all done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is a, a pretty harsh reveal of the heart that remains inside of Jonah. He's not a renewed man on an inspired mission. He's still a begrudging prophet fueled by resentment. What, what happened? How can Jonah experience this dramatic deliverance from God, from this belly of a fish, being rescued from the depths of the sea just to revert back to his, his pouting ways? For, for Jonah, speaking to his enemies, people he simply disdains, isn't the sort of mercy he wants to see in the world. I think that feels pretty common for a lot of us, that we're sometimes met with an offer of mercy for something we never wanted in the first place. A mercy for something you never wanted in the first place. You know, I felt that over these last months uh, myself. My oldest daughter, Annie, uh, who is deaf, uh, had a really big heart surgery just a few months ago. This is her her seventh or so surgery in her eight years of life. And even before she was born, we'd been praying for her health and for her well-being. And almost every year, we've had a, a new discovery about her health or a new diagnosis, a new challenge to work with. You know, her last heart surgery was a brilliant success, um, but we've struggled to get her medication right ever since that operation. And I'm grateful that it all went well. But this isn't the mercy that I was asking for. I, I've been praying that there would be no surgery, that there would be a healed heart. Talking to the doctors years before, that was an option. There was a possibility for her heart to develop in ways that this would not be needed. And we prayed to that end. What do you, what do, you do when you don't get the mercy that you're asking for, when you don't see the mercy you 
you want to see. You know, it's easier in those moments to turn your heart off to the flow of mercy altogether and kind of give up on the whole project. It's not hard to, to tally these things up. Think about it. If a, if a marriage breaks down, that's not the sort of mercy you hope to find in your life. When a friend's baby has cancer, mercy there is not the sort of mercy you ever want. When a young man dies in our community, it's not the sort of mercy you go looking for or craving. For Jonah, he doesn't like the story he's in. And he's caught up in a frustrated life, bound up by obligations. He's just going through the motions while he's nursing some deep anger and resentment and this desperate desire to try and escape. Jonah's just unhappy with how God is running things and thinks that at best, God is unfair and at worst, God is simply incompetent. Think for a moment in your own life, is there a place you can feel, you can sense some resistance towards yourself and God? Uh, a place that you feel you've been shortchanged in your life. Try and hold that in your mind for a second. You know, one thing that's been helpful for me as I've been trying to process these last months is to try and ask, what's the story I'm telling myself that feeds those feelings of, of resistance? Marvel, you know, the massive comic book uh, group, released a new TV series just a couple of years back called What If? And uh, the show explores different storylines that could have evolved, you know, kind of alternate universes had certain things been, been changed. You know, it's not hard to imagine that. You know, what if I never had that job? What kind of a life do I take? What if I never met that person? How would my life, you know, look like? Um, I talked to a friend just a little while ago about the power of what if sorts of prayers. Not where we try and imagine an alternate sort of reality, but where we try and think, what if there was a different way of interpreting the very stories that we're in? A different way to hold our own experiences. Moving away from resentment you know, takes a, a lot of work. Just uh, the other week, I was driving with my family, coming back from a week of, of camping, Everyone was, was tired and was crying in the car. It was awful. You know, we're just keen to get home. So I'm going over the Lionsgate Bridge and I put my blinker on to merge. I'm a big believer in the orderly merge. And, uh, and the car in the other lane sees me put the blinker on and speeds up to hug the bumper in front of them. And I think, oh, my friend, you have chosen the wrong day to make this move. Because now for the entire ride of the bridge, I'm going to be right behind you and I'm going to be burning the hole in the back of your head. Just thinking about, why would you not obey the beautiful rules of merging? You know, for, for about five minutes, just stood on this thought of what am I going to do when I can try and get into two lanes again and pull up next to them? I just can't wait to kind of get over, get a little look. And just that little quiet stare of, huh, I didn't know that I was better than you. Good to know. 
And I stewed on this for about 10 minutes and I never got my chance and they turned away. Ah, it's God's grace. But uh, I, got to, I got to practice this idea of trying to reinterpret my story of resentment. So as I was driving there, I thought, well, maybe the driver of that car is not an evil villain. Maybe. Maybe they're having a, a good laugh in the car and just didn't see me and went for a little quicker. Maybe they're from out of town and they're doing like a, a caravan drive and didn't know the way through the downtown of Vancouver, wanna stay close. Maybe they're like me and they're just desperate to get home. You know, resentment may feel right, like we've earned it, like we're in the proper stance, but it never serves us. It never helps us become more beautiful people. You know, it's a great prayer experiment to try out to say, God, would you help me find a different way of seeing what I'm experiencing right now? Help me find a different way to hold this story, an alternate perspective. Maybe moving from a place of resentment to a place of mercy. You know, counselors are really good at helping people do this, trying to say, is there an alternate narrative for you to hold your story in? If, if you read people's um, biographies, it's, it's fascinating to see the way that they try and interpret their lives by different events. You've got options for how you'll interpret the events around you. And I think if I could go and walk with Jonah from his time at Vomit Beach, oh, it sounds so rough, at that beach walking to Nineveh, I think I'd want to have that chat. Are there some different ways to interpret the story that you're in? Some different options. You know, with, with Annie, I was hoping for something of a, a miracle story for, for God's supernatural intervention to uh, make her well. Jonah kind of shows us that sometimes a miracle isn't the thing you need. Jonah experiences a miracle, a dramatic miracle, and it doesn't change him. What we might need most deeply is to have our hearts awakened to the mercy of God, to see it in a fresh and new way, to have our whole life contextualized by it. I, I want to become that kind of a person who goes looking for storylines where God's mercy can shine. I've been inspired by this quote from Dallas Willard, who was a, a late uh, teacher and philosopher. He says this, the quality of our souls will indelibly touch others for good or for ill. So we must never forget that the most important thing happening at any moment is the kind of persons we are becoming. If I had that walk with Jonah, I'd make sure I quoted Dallas Willard. You know, I think he'd, uh, he'd appreciate that. Oh, let's keep going to this um, second part then. What closes mercy down? The idea of a, a resentful heart that kind of tallies the wounds of life. Well, let's ask, what opens mercy up? Who cannot use more mercy uh, in their lives? Let's go for chapter three. What's the response to the world's shortest sermon delivered with lackluster effort? Let's see it. Verse five, the Ninevites believed God 
a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now this is meant to get the reader to have a, a bit of a smile. Now Assyria is the big bad empire. These are the most evil people in the world. They're, they're horrific. And they, when they hear Jonah's one-liner, his five words, one day's walk into the city, they all stop eating and they get dressed up in burlap and goat's hair and say, there's a new fashion trend in the whole city. It's meant to make you think, wow, look at this. Jonah, who's this prophet of God, this mouthpiece for God's word, he struggles with God's call. He wrestles with it. He runs away from it. All kinds of rebellion. And the Ninevites, this bloodthirsty, evil people, have pliant, receptive hearts. It's meant to make you think, wow, that's a very different kind of response. When the king of Assyria hears about this, now the king of Assyria is perhaps the most wicked person alive. This is as bad as they get. What's his response? When Jonah's warning reached came to Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Scripture often uh, provides us a, a drama of grace from the outsider, from someone that you might not expect to find it in. Think about like a, a pagan foreigner like Ruth or Rahab or the story about a, a good Samaritan. Here, the, the king of Assyria calls urgently on God. He's meant to say, whoa, what's, what's happening here? There's a, a famous Assyrian wall mural, you can find it at the British Museum, that details one of the conquests of Assyria in Israel. Uh, it's pretty horrific. There's sketches in this, um, this mural of a siege that lasted months. And again, the Assyrians were famous for their horrific violence. In the mural, it depicts people being skinned alive upon being captured and impaled on posts around the city. This is the king who says, let's repent of our evil and violence. This is supposed to be the most radical reversal imaginable. And to add a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration into it, all, all the animals are in on it too. All the animals stop eating. All the animals also put on sackcloth. Again, it's meant to make you kind of smile to picture the big bad enemy, Assyria, trying to put on burlap over their cows as a sign of repentance. And then comes a line from the king that I think is perhaps one of the most stunning lines in the whole book. He says this, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
Who knows? What's the measure of God's mercy? This might be the most profound question in the whole book. And perhaps God himself does not know the limits of his mercy. Who knows? Jonah thinks he's got a really good sense of where mercy belongs and when mercy does not belong. But here, the evil king will take a bet on the extravagant mercy of God. That's a good bet to take. It's the Ninevites, these violent people who are the example of what's appropriate. They do all they can to to line themselves up with God, to have everything that they touch lined up with God, to take any measure to be alert, the very possibility of mercy. They go hunting for it. They go looking for it in a desperate way. The way we absorb pain in our lives, you know, it can shrink us. It can make us grumpier and smaller. Or it can stretch us and make us larger and more full. What's the difference between being shrunk or being expanded? I think it's our, our openness to mercy a sort of a a holy curiosity. We used to have our our kids go around the room. They all share one room together uh, and and say a little prayer before bed. And pretty soon we found that the prayers became pretty, pretty rote. They used to be the same prayers every night. Or we'd say, hey, it's your turn to pray. And they'd be like, no, I refuse to pray. Okay, this isn't working so well. So we tried to change uh, tactics. So now when we try and uh, wrap up the day, you know, everyone's in their bed. We go around and we say, hey, what's one thing that happened today that made your heart feel full? Something that made you feel alive? We haven't tried to like break down the rationale with them, like why we're doing this. But the hope is that our kids would have a full life engagement with what's ever around them. You know, to not have a, a sleepy way of kind of getting through life, but to try and have a full life to what's up and what's down and to people who look for signs of mercy, who hunt for it, who, who pay attention to it. Um, Woody Allen has this great line that's attributed to him where he says, 90% of success in life is just showing up, trying to be present to your life and look there for something of mercy something of God's goodness, not trying to drift into the shadows and eke into the, the background. Now, I mentioned before that my family was on this, uh, this camping trip. Um, it wasn't an ordinary, you know, tenting experience. It's, uh, it's a camp for the deaf, and it's, uh, it's a pretty unique thing. It's families from all over British Columbia who have somebody who's deaf in their family, and they all gather together to tent for for a week out on, on Hornby Island. You know, tenting uh, with a bunch of deaf people is beautiful, and like any tent experience, it's exhausting for sure. But the whole, the whole camp operates in American sign language. So, uh, you know, you're trying to have your voice off and sign as much as you can. There's lots of interpreters around for those who are still 
learning sign and trying to get more, more comfortable. But when you place yourself in a beautiful setting and you're there with some beautiful people, uh, there's something really compelling about people who are all looking for some kind of mercy together to figure out how this unique element of being deaf in their story will be a part of making their lives uniquely beautiful. And that's compelling. It's really good. I say to my wife that Annie has brought us into a world where there's kids with all kinds of different health needs and they're really finding a fit with each other. It's, it's a stunning sense of community. And my little eight-year-old is teaching me how to, how to welcome the story I'm in and to say, hey, there is mercy to be found here. Mercy that's good and that's fitting and that I actually really need. What, what happens when we set ourselves up to be mercy hunters, to go and look for God's mercy? You see it here at the end of chapter three. That's good news for the Ninevites. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God delights in a responsive heart. Every, every character in the book of Jonah has a responsive heart. Remember back in chapter one, it's those sailors who have Jonah in the boat and the storm comes up and they think, what are we gonna do? They see that God calms the storm and they respond to him with, with worship and with praise. Even the fish who swallows Jonah, when God commands him to spew up on the beach, the fish responds and listens. Even the evil king of Assyria and all their cows, all their animals have responsive hearts when God's word is proclaimed. There's only one character whose heart is not responsive, the prophet of God, Jonah. Everyone else, the fish, the cows, all the baddies have openness towards God. And the person you think is in the best spot to hear from God and respond doesn't do it. God himself demonstrates this delight in being responsive that he himself changes his mind. He turns away from the wrath that's offered towards Nineveh when he sees their repentant hearts. Responsiveness, it's, it's a beautiful thing in the heart of God. In the end, Jonah's prophecy actually is fulfilled. You know, what he said was gonna happen is right. Nineveh, was overturned, but not in the way that Jonah had thought. He thought it would be destroyed and laid bare. Instead, it gets flipped over. It gets renovated, totally made new and turned around. And I think God stills offering the same kind of flipping over, overturning to every place of darkness that we occupy. How could this be flipped to be something of a story of God's mercy. I believe it, that God's mercy never stops running. It never stops coming towards us again and again in second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. And we have constant opportunities 
to close ourselves down to mercy or to open ourselves up. When my little Lucy, uh, you know, delivered that running uh, headbutt and her, you know, resentful sorry, you know, didn't land so well, I, I, I tried, you know, thinking, should I increase the punishment and say no TV for a week until you say sorry in a better way? But instead I thought, you know what? No, no, I'm going to try and I'll get down on her level. I uh, kneeled down next to her and I said, hey, Lucy, I, I know it's really hard to, to say sorry. But you can see that your, your sister is, is really hurt and we want to help her to feel better. So can you try and, and offer as, as full of a sorry as you can? I don't remember what she did, but I think she tried it again. But that's how I've been trying to internalize this story of, of Jonah. You know, I may not always have this maximum energy in my response to God to say, wholesale, I'm all in to everything. But I do want to show up as best as I'm able. I want to try and say a real yes to Jesus, as full of a yes as I'm able in each moment of my life. I don't want to be closed off to mercy because of my own resentments and my tally of the things that have happened that have not been due me. But I want to have this kind of holy curiosity and to stay receptive to where mercy might show up. We're in good shape in this room in that every time we gather, we look here at a, at a picture of mercy where arms are outstretched and the question is offered, who knows? Who knows the limits of mercy? Maybe not even God himself. Who knows? But in this picture of Christ, we see a prophet who doesn't come to deliver a message with half-hearted, reluctant obedience, but who comes with a fullness of being. We see a king who steps away from his throne and places himself in the dirt, in humility, offering his life. We see mercy displayed so that we too might inhabit a story of mercy ourselves. Let's pray together. God, by your spirit, would you help us see Jonah as a mirror for our lives? And in our begrudging places, would you offer us second chances third chances. In our resentments, when we find ourselves in situations we'd hoped we'd forever avoid, help us find your offer of a new kind of story. Thank you for not tallying our past. Help us to be responsive to you and to offer the best of a yes that we can muster. Don't stop pursuing us. And today and forever, help us to make our home in your story of mercy. Amen.